and amen. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you would turn there, and I want to begin this morning by looking at verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling, hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Now, I want to start here this morning. And I want to ask, as I was looking at this text this week, I had to ask myself, why does Paul pray like this for you? Why does he find himself praying like this for me? Now, we are only in verse, what, 7 this morning. But we find Paul here toward the end uh, or the middle of chapter 1, praying this amazing prayer for us. And we need to ask why. Well, I think he feels compelled to pray this kind of prayer for us because he knows something about us. He knows something about us. He knows how spiritually myopic we tend to be. He knows how short-sighted and how prone we are to tunnel vision spiritually. That is, unless God is gracious to us and we put a lot of effort into training ourselves to see the great value of the spiritual treasure that we have in Christ, we'll miss it. We will miss it. Moreover, specifically, we will miss the hope that is promised. Do you see the words here in verse 18? The hope of his calling. Paul is saying that if your eyes are not enlightened to these rich truths about who we are and what we have in Christ, we'll miss out on the hope. And we know we miss it, don't we? Because we've read Ephesians chapter 1 how many times in our Christian lives? And yet when we come and we start digging into it, we say, I didn't know that was there. I didn't, this is good. I didn't know this stuff was there. Why? Because we read it, we ran through it, we never stopped to consider what was being given us. We'll miss the hope if we do that. Another way of saying that is simply this. We will be hopeless. We'll be hopeless. We'll see the commandment of For example, chapter 5, verse 25, to love our wives as Christ loves the church. And that will just suck the hope right out of us. Because we know who we are for all the self-esteem theology in in the church today. We know the truth about our hearts. We know Jeremiah 17, right? You're all heart. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, know the heart, God says in verse 18. Your heart is wicked. Your heart is deceitful. And when you're given a standard, love your wife, man, like Christ loves the church. You're going to fall off the beam one way or the other. Either you're going to fall off the beam into being a Pharisee and saying, I can handle that, and then I'm going to judge everybody else who can't. 
And you're going to make up a list of rules that you think you can abide by and bring the standard of God down to an attainable level, which will displease God all the more. Or you can fall off the beam the other way and say, there's no hope. I can never do this. I'll never, ever measure up. And you'll just sit in the back of the church and you'll hang your head and you won't have your quiet time and you won't want to talk to God. You won't pray. God, I can never do that. I know my heart. I'll never rise to that standard. And Paul is saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to these things so that you won't miss the hope of his calling." You see, all of this, yes, is about salvation. It's about how we came to know Christ. It's about what God did to bring us to Christ. But you know what? Your salvation is not something that happened on a moment in time when you professed faith in Christ. Salvation is something that starts on that day and happens every day for the rest of eternity. You are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And that salvation includes all of these other things that God gives us. Not only redemption, but all of this other treasure. And he's saying, if you don't take time to stop and consider the treasure of God in Christ, given to you by grace, you'll miss it. The first thing you'll miss is the hope. And you'll find yourself either being proud or you'll find yourself being utterly stricken by hopelessness. And we'll see commands like this and throw up our hands. We'll get discouraged and depressed with thoughts of the standard being one that's impossible to, in, to attain. And notice what else Paul prays here. We're still in 18 by way of introduction. He also prays for our enlightenment so that we will know, look at this, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, why does he pray that? This is what he's praying for us. Why does he pray that? I want you to know the hope of your calling, of his calling you. I want you to also know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Why does he pray that for us? Well, Because without such a vision of God and his glorious provision for us, we will live like spiritual paupers. You know any Christians who are going around and they claim to be believers and yet their life is a walking disaster? I mean, they're claiming to be believers and yet their life is wrecked with sin and bad habits and bad language and, you know, and they they just can't seem to ever make any progress and they don't even seem to want to try. They just kind of, you know, quesera, sarah kind of theology. I am what I am. And that's all I'll ever be. And they're just spiritual paupers. They're spiritual beggars, street people. And yet God has made them rich. And they don't even know it. Without such a vision of the glorious provision God has given to us, we are spiritual beggars. And we'll neglect the resources we have to buy up all that we need to, for example, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You've got that sin that plagues you, that easily besets you, and here it comes, the temptation is coming. How do you stand? God has granted you everything you need to stand, and yet if you are not using the treasure that God has given you in Christ, you fall. 
And Paul's saying, I pray this for you because I don't want you to fall. I don't want you to fall. You need to know these truths so that you can stand. You need to know how rich you are in Christ so that you can stand. We will live life constantly defeated. We will live a life that's constantly defeated when in reality we've been given everything that we need to be victorious. Not only that, but he prays that we will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, why does he pray that? Why do we need to know this? Why does he pray that I I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened to these things? Why this one? Well, because being a truly victorious and faithful and joyful believer in a sinful world requires unbelievable, superhuman strength. In fact, the only place we can get the kind of strength we need to do it is from God. In fact, the only place that God provides it is through Christ. But we will never be able to be successful and know the kind of power that God has provided if we don't know he has provided all of it we could ever, ever, ever need. And so we skim over the doctrine and we just shoot ourselves in the head spiritually. And we think doctrine is divisive and doctrine is for theologians and doctrine is, is unimportant. What we really need is love, sweet love. Everybody just needs to get along. We've got that Rodney Think King theology going on. Can we all just be happy? Not unless you know the truth. Because you'll have no foundation under your feet. We must have eyes. Paul is saying, I pray that your hearts will be enlightened. Did you see that? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to these things. So that you will have hope. So that you will know the riches. And so that you will possess all the surpassing strength that you're going to need to be a pure single. To be a faithful college student. Without compromise. To be a, a faithful husband in a disaster of a marriage, or even in a good marriage, it takes unbelievable strength. You're not going to make it unless you know what you have in Christ. We must have eyes that can see these things in hearts that desire to lay hold of them for the glory of God and for our own joy. If we don't get eyes that can see the infinite worth of being united with Christ, then we're going to be like we're going to live like a couple of folks I read about in World Magazine about a month ago. Here's their description. Neither the thief who stole the 320-year-old Stradivarius cello last month, nor the woman who found it thought it was worth very much. The thief apparently threw the cello in a dumpster, and the woman who found it wanted her boyfriend to turn it into an unusual CD case. It was only upon closer inspection... It was only upon closer inspection several days later that the woman says she realized it was no normal cello and turned it over to the Los Angeles police. The cello made by Antonio Stradivari, 1684, is only one of 60 in existence and is worth $3.5 million. 
one of the musicians from the Philharmonic Orchestra there in, in Los Angeles took it home to practice on, and he was going into his apartment and inadvertently left it outside. I mean, this is what we're talking about here. This is what I'm trying to communicate week after week. If we don't look intently, if we don't take closer inspection into these things, we'll just toss it into the heap of all the other theological stuff that's meaningless to us because we never took time to understand it. And we won't realize the precious treasure that we have right here in our hands. How many Bibles are there in homes today that are platforms for stacks of CDs and DVDs and are not used for the real treasure of changing a life for eternity? We don't realize what we have in our hands. We don't realize the power. We don't realize the treasure. We don't realize the worth. And so we read it in the morning and we fly through it and we say, Jesus, bless me. And we get on with our day and we never think about the word again. We're like what James says, the man who looks into the perfect law of liberty like in a mirror. And he sees himself just briefly. And then he walks away and forgets what he's seen. He doesn't take it seriously. And so the word is of no value to him. So Paul prays for us that we will not run past this truth he's laying out for us here. He wants us to look intently and make careful inspection of these things. He knows how easy it is to read through these first 14 verses and be completely blind to its value as if it were written only for an elite sect of theologians. But that's not true. It wasn't written for seminarians. It wasn't written for pastors only. It was written for everyone who knows the name of Christ. It's written for us who believe that we will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of His glory, of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. That's why we're taking our time through these first 14 verses. We've got to learn these things. We've got to learn these things. And not just learn them so that we can intellectually reproduce them or regurgitate them for the test. We need to know them in our hearts. We need to make our boast in these things. I was sitting with a brother the other night and we were quoting scripture, quoting this script in the Ephesians, you know, that we're working on together. And we got talking about the text and talking about the glory of Christ that we see here. And he shared some things with me that I didn't see. And, man, we spent about a half hour just boasting in the Lord together. And I said, yes, yes, this is what we're talking about. This is the kind of conversation that I need and you need. But you can't have it if you're not in the book digging for the treasure. So as we study these things, we should be praying with David, should we not? Open my eyes, Lord, that I may see wonderful things in your law. Paul prays, I pray that your eye, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to these things. Because you need them. You need them. Don't let anybody tell you you don't need doctrine. Because you need it. So as we continue our study in Ephesians chapter 1, therefore, I think 
We're beginning to capture for ourselves a deep sense that before we can ever hope to live faithfully in all the practical arenas of life that Paul deals with in chapters 4 through 6 of his letter, we must first understand the blessed provision God has made for us in chapters 1 through 3. So we've been deliberately eavesdropping, so to speak, on Paul's prayer of worship and thanksgiving as he blesses God for all the rich provision he has lavished on us in Christ. In fact, as we have seen, all three members of the Trinity have been involved in the blessing. And how have they blessed us? Well, first of all, the Father has blessed us. The Father has chosen and predestined us to the privilege of becoming children. In fact... Last week's message was really a message on a single word in this text. And that word was adoption. Our adoption is so crucial that we understand that we've been adopted and what that means. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to make us holy and blameless. And he planned to do it by adopting us into his forever family in Christ. And that's what the Father has done. The Father has chosen us and he's predestined us. But what did God the Son do? What did he do for us? Well, there are three things Paul Paul exalts in as he worships God in prayer here, these first 14 verses. First, the Son of God redeemed us with his blood. Secondly, he enlightened us with his wisdom. And finally, and we'll have to look at this one next week, he endowed us with his inheritance. Let's begin looking at the first one. What has the Son of God done? He has redeemed us with his blood, verses 7 through 12. Let's read it again. In him, that is, the beloved, which is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. The question that naturally arises to the top after we read about what a high position, we talked about last week, this exalted position and rank that we have been raised to in Christ by means of our adoption The first question that kind of rises to the surface is, how did we ever get there? I mean, what? how do we justify that? How did that happen? What made me eligible for such an awesome promotion of status and privilege before God? If all of this blessedness is true about me being elevated to the position of the rank of right next to the Son of God, if it's true that God the Father loves me now just as much as he loves the Son, as John 17, I believe, 23 says, how did we get here? Answer, Jesus paid the price. That's the only answer. Jesus paid the price. You see, before God could ever raise us up to a position of ultimate blessing and privilege, he first had to deal with a major, major problem. He had to break down the barrier wall that separated us from him. You see, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, chapter 2, verse 1 says. 
You are dead in your trespasses and sins. The idea of being dead here carries two connotations. One is that we are separated from God. And the other is that we are unresponsive to God. Understand that? When a person is dead, they are separated from those they love, and they are unresponsive to those they love. I'll never forget when I, uh, an experience I had as a child living in Bordentown, New Jersey. Yeah, I grew up there. I'd never seen a dead person in my life. I, I, I don't remember how old I was. I was 10, 12 years old. I had never seen a dead person. And my grandfather, Pop Kirk, had passed away. You've got to understand who this guy was to me uh, and has become more to me in my later years. But he was perhaps the liveliest man I've ever known, even in his 70s. His love for Jesus made him the happiest and most joyful person I had ever known. He was quick-witted. He loved to get on the floor and play with us kids. Sometimes, often, he was downright silly. And yet, he had one of the keenest spiritual minds I have to this day ever run into. He knew God like I pray, I hope someday I'll know God like he did. It was amazing. He loved to play with us kids. He loved to get on the floor and wrestle. He would challenge us spiritually. But when he died, I remember walking into the funeral home there in Bordentown, afraid of what I might see. I've never been to a funeral before. And this was a guy that I loved. As soon as I walked through the doors, I looked over at the casket, and there he was. And two things ran through my mind. First one was, there's no reason to be afraid here. And as I approached the casket and looked down at Pop Kirk, my second thought was, he's not here. It was a total shock to me. He's not here. This is his body. I recognize it. It's definitely him. But he's not here. Everything he's told me all these years is right. He's gone. He's someplace else, and I believe he is where he always longed to be. But one thing's for sure, he's not here. There he was, dressed in his Sunday best, looking sharp, completely at rest. But he wasn't there. You see, when a person is dead, they are absolutely and totally separated from the people that love them. Not only that, but they are absolutely and totally unresponsive, totally unresponsive to any external stimuli. You know, it doesn't matter how you poke a corpse, how you talk to a corpse, what you do to a corpse, how you dress it. It doesn't matter. You will get no response ever. Why? Because it's dead. We need to understand that that's the position we were before grace. I think I told you before, I once had a brother come to me and and argue with me about this, and they said, you know, when you think about deadness, you think about being really, really dead. You think about, and I said, you know, like dead in your trespasses and sins? Yeah, you think about being dead in your trespasses and sins, like really dead. But that's not the only uh, uh, definition of dead. If my battery in my car dies, if I say my car is dead, I may go out there and not be able to turn the key on, but there might be enough energy in there to turn the dome light on. 
The car's dead, but there's still a little life there. And a lot of people think of unbelievers like that. They've got enough light that if they would just work on it and nurture it and fan the flame, that they can come to Christ. And the answer I should have given at that time and didn't was, well, that's a, that's a clever analogy, but Paul didn't know anything about batteries. He only knew corpses. When he chose the word dead, he was thinking of a carcass, a dead thing or a dead person. You were dead. You were separated from God and you were absolutely unresponsive to God. And it wasn't until he gave you life that you breathed your first breath of faith. And that's where the second person of the Trinity steps in. You see, the Father may have chosen and predestined. Those are Paul's words. Those aren't mine. They're not Calvin's. They're not Luther's. They're not anybody else's. Paul may have chosen and predestined. But you know what? That would have been of no value for salvation if the Son had not redeemed us with his blood. All the preordination, all the, all the choosing and predestining in the universe would never have saved us if it was not accompanied by the blood of Christ. Now, I know y'all don't say amen very often, but when a preacher says something like that, you ought to say amen. Well, that was weak, but we'll work on it. What is redemption? The word redemption here means... Deliverance by payment of a ransom. Deliverance by payment of a ransom. One of the things that has confused the gospel in our day, I believe, is the idea that salvation comes by profession. It comes by profession. That is, if a person will simply say the right words and repeat the sinner's prayer, All of his sins will be permanently erased. Forgiveness will be granted. Salvation secured. The problem, really, that this view faces is, frankly, it cheapens the substance of the gospel to nothing more than a Harry Potterish magic charm. And so people think, if I can just get someone to pray the prayer, they'll be saved. If I can just get them to say the words, they'll be saved. It's like abracadabra. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean really anything, but it's, it's the magic word. And if you say it just right, something good will happen, or bad, depending on what you want. And if you say these words, uh, they're kind of formatted in the sinner's prayer, if you say them, then you have salvation. And I tell you, that is dangerous. That is, there are so many people who are in churches today, who made that kind of profession and yet really have no possession on the Holy Spirit. It's a false hope, frankly, because it's a false gospel. The gospel message, let's be clear, the gospel message is this. That apart from the grace of God, you and I are in such a miserable condition of guilt and condemnation that there is no hope. There is no hope 
for you to do anything for yourself to redeem yourself or to bring yourself to life. The perfect righteousness that God requires of people to gain entrance into his presence in heaven is something that we desperately need, don't have, and can't earn. Far from being fit for life in heaven, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have ears that won't hear God. We have a heart that won't love God. We have a a mind that rejects God. And what we really love in this life is not purity and holiness and truth, but wickedness, rebellion, and sin, Paul says. That's what we love. In fact, Paul goes on to say we are slaves to our flesh and to the devil, and there is nothing that we can ever do to set ourselves free. That's our condition. And that's where Jesus steps in. Seeing us, as it were, on the auction block as a slave to sin, the Lord Jesus looks at us with compassion. And he lays down the required ransom. He pays the required price to set us free. That's the gospel. And by the way, if you miss the first part, you can't have the second part. If you missed the dead in your trespasses and sins part, you can't have the salvation part. I was leading a group one day, and I was meeting with unbelievers. We were doing this once a week and uh, at, at uh, Rodney's house for a couple of years. And I'll never forget one night, uh, one of the ladies in the group, we were talking about this and how Christ came to save us from our sin, and we can't ever lay hold of Christ and the gift of salvation that he's given us unless we come to terms with how desperately wicked, sinful, and needy we are. And then we turn to Christ, but we have to know our sin first. And she took issue with that, and she said, well, I didn't come to Christ like that. I came to Christ because of his love. I came to Christ because of his kindness and his mercy. And you could tell as she was describing these things that there was no substance behind this. It wasn't love because he laid down his life because I was desperately sinful and needing of that payment. It was just he's loving and he's gracious and he's kind. And when I saw that, I, I said, yes, I want that. And I said to her, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel starts with knowing how wretched and sinful and desperately in need you are of a Savior. You'll never come to Christ. You'll never have the Spirit of God living in you until you come to terms with the fact that you are going to hell unless He does something miraculously gracious on your behalf. That's the gospel. And what did he do? He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sin or to pay the ransom for our sin or to redeem us by his blood for our sin. It's the only acceptable price for the purchase of hell-bound rebellious sinners who have lived a life doing nothing but breaking God's law at every turn and belittling his name before the world. There could be only one acceptable ransom, namely the bloody death of the Son of God. That's redemption. That's redemption. And so Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 1.30, But by his doing you were in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and what? What's the next word? Redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, there we are boasting again, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? Because he has redeemed us. He paid the full price for us. Praise his name. I boast in him alone. Oh, that was a good amen. And to Timothy he wrote, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. He gave himself as a ransom. And for those of you who are C.S. Lewis fans, be careful about that line, the witch in the wardrobe scene, where Aslan, the Christ figure, pays the price to who? The witch. That's not what's happening in the gospel. Satan was not paid for your soul. Satan had no part in the transaction. This was a transaction that took place between God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father alone. And he did it with your participation on your behalf because there was no other way. And so to Titus, Paul writes about our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He paid the price. How much was he worth? What kind of price? What was the value? Peter said, 1 Peter 1, 16, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with, here's the treasure, but with precious blood. You see how he's comparing wealth, silver and gold, the most precious things we have, with the blood of Christ. All of those things are perishable. But we have this eternal gift, the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. The gospel is simply this. By the way, Mark 10.45, Jesus even throws in on this when he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life a ransom. For many. That's the gospel. That Jesus paid the unspeakably enormous ransom to save us. And our response should be, Amen. Praise God. I will make my boast in you alone. Listen, if you were in those waters a few weeks ago when the floods came to Dallas and Fort Worth and surrounding areas, if you got your car stuck in one of those things and started tumbling down river and you got out and you were hanging on a tree like that kid was a couple of weeks ago, and you were there in the darkness, and somebody sees you, and here you are helpless. You are going to die. And some fireman comes out on a rope or in a raft and grabs you heroically and pulls you out of the water. Guess what you're going to be talking about for a really long time? You're going to be making your boast in Fireman Bob. How much more worthy is Son of God? Jesus Christ. 
So let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? Because of what he has given you and what he has done for you and the price he had to pay to make it yours. That's the gospel. What a savior. That's grace. But it's not cheap grace. No, Paul says in verse 7, this is according to the, what? Riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. You see that recurring theme all the way throughout these verse, first 14 verses. This lavishing and pouring out and blessing. This is just a part of it. It's infinitely valuable, but it's only a part of what He's given Do you see treasure here? Do you see the currency of heaven here? It's the only currency that works in the kingdom of God. It's the only way to pay for all the resources we need to live a life that pleases the Lord and fills us with true and lasting joy. This truth has tremendous implications for us. You see, now that Jesus has purchased us with his own blood, we belong to him. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You're not your own. You belong to someone who is holy and gracious. This truth has tremendous implications for us. In fact, that's what chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians is all about. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. How do I do that, Paul? Verses, I mean, chapters 4 through 6. I'll tell you how. Just master 4, 5, and 6. And you'll have it. You have all the essentials. Glorify God in your bodies. We're called to glorify God with our mind, with our mouth, with our hands, with our feet. And we're called to glorify Him as husbands and wives, as parents and employers, children, singles, members of the local church. But how in the world can hell-bound sinners like us ever hope to glorify God in these ways? Answer, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been ransomed. We've been bought off the auction block of sin. Sin is no longer my master. God came to save us from our sin. And that's why when you see someone who's professing faith in Jesus Christ and they're living a worldly, ungodly, sinful life, just discount it completely. Forget about their profession. The question is not, did you profess? The question is, do you possess the Holy Spirit? Because when the Lord Jesus came to ransom us, he ransomed us from sin. It's penalty and it's power. You got a sin in your life that plagues you? You got a sin in your life that just masters you? Paul said, I will not 
be mastered by sin. I will not be mastered by sin. Now, how could he be so arrogant? It's not arrogance. It's faith. It's humble faith that says, I will trust him. When I'm tempted in this way, I will trust him because he came to die that I might overcome. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been bought with a price. Now we're free to live holy lives. So we are unspeakably rich because we've been redeemed. And by the way, that was the last thing that Jesus said on the cross, right? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He said, I thirst. He said a few other things. Remember the last thing he said? In the Aramaic, he said, Tetelestai. In English, it is, it is finished. But to the common people, what they heard was paid in full. Paid in full. His dying word was, I've paid it all. It's all paid for. No more debt. You're free. You're free. Paid in full. So on the day that Jesus died, we were granted redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. But that's not all the Son did. In verse 8, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. In other words, he enlightened us with his wisdom. Well, I'm looking at the clock and I'm looking at how many pages I have left and I'm realizing that I'm probably going to start. Somebody saying no, somebody saying yes. Why don't we hold this for next week and we'll do the next two next week. But I've I got to ask you, are you getting the significance of this? Are you beginning to realize how blessed you are in Christ? I'll tell you what, there's some habits in my life some communication patterns that I want to change. Things in, in my life that God revealed recently, going through the men's ministry, and I look at those things, and when they start creeping up, and I feel that temptation, you know, my first thought is, if I don't give in to it right away, sometimes I do, but if I don't give in to it right away, you know what my first thought is? I have everything I need to handle this. I am blessed beyond measure in Christ. I can stand. Lord Jesus, help me stand. If you come away from these 14 verses with that, you've come away with a treasure. Because folks, most Christians, most professing Christians are living unholy lives. And they don't see any way to change that. And many don't even have a desire to change it. But if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the desire, but here, this may be a revelation, you also have the resources. You also have the power. You also have the hope. You also have the strength. You also have the wisdom. You have it all. You have it all. Don't Treat it like a cello that you find out in the parking lot. You open it up and you say, what is that old thing? And you close it up and you flip it in a dumpster. Only to find out later it was worth millions 
and now you don't have it anymore. Don't wait. Don't take it lightly. Don't come to church saying, oh, another boring sermon. You know, if it's boring, that's my fault completely. But listen, the truth is here. The truth is here. It's treasure. If, I mean, some people, maybe me, could take a pile of gold and lay it before you and, and, and make it seem boring. But I hope you'll dig in it anyway. There's gold here. There's diamonds. There's riches here for your enrichment, for your life. But you've got to be diligent. You've got to be looking for it. You've got to be digging on your own. That's why whenever someone comes to me and they've got a major problem they're dealing with in their life, you know what my first question is always? Every time. Tell me about your quiet time. How's your time with the Lord going? And I hope that as we meet, wherever we meet, standing around having casual conversation, I hope you hear coming out of my mouth this question. How's your time in the Word going, brother? How's your time in the Word going? Because you know what? If you're not in the Word, it's like you've got money in the bank and you're unwilling to ever go make a withdrawal. I mean, go to the bank, man. Go to the bank. Go to the bank. I wish I had what I, what I needed to be a godly husband. Go to the bank. It's full. Your account is full. Go to the bank. I wish I had what it took to raise my children in a godly way. What are you standing around for? Go to the bank. Make a withdrawal. It all comes back to the simplicity and purity of devotion to the Word of God and prayer. That's where it comes back to. Rodney used to say, <laughs> we'd have this group, and they'd come, and, and they were all involved in the 12 steps, and Rodney and Dana set this thing up for these drug addicts to come, and, and or recovering drug addicts, and, and um, they would come, and, and they'd see the transformation that happened in Rodney and Dana's life, and, and they'd invite them, come and, and find out about the God of the Bible. We've got somebody who come and share that with you, and these people would come for two years. We had this constant stream of people coming in, and and uh, once in a while, they'd ask Rodney, okay, Rodney, now tell me, how did it happen? How, how, did, how did you how did you become what you are? I remember who you used to be. And I'll never forget this. Rodney always used to say, if you want what I got, you got to do what I do. Simple. If you want a holy life, if you're tired of living a impotent, lame, feckless, useless Christian life. You've got to do something about it. It will not come upon you because God predestined you to holiness. You will be made holy someday if you're a true believer. In Christ, on the day you see Him face to face, you will be holy. But you may very well be without reward. Because you did not fight the fight of faith here, now, in preparation for the there and then. So, folks, I encourage you, get into this book this week. Just get into Ephesians. Read it again and again and again and again. Be ahead of me. So we come to that verse, and you're saying, you know, I always wondered, I wondered what that verse meant. We're going to come to it, and then you're going to hear what it means, and then we can dialogue about it, and we can make our boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we'll know joy. Then we will be a joyful people 
radically living, taking risks, seeing people come to Christ, and seeing the nations reached with the gospel. That's why we do this. That's why we're studying as we are. God is blessing. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving for these things. We so need your spirit to work in our hearts to change us because we're so dull of heart. And we love all the things that you hate and we, we so are, are so slow to delight in the things that you love. But, oh, Father, I pray that you would change us and make us the kind of people that are noticeable in our communities and in our workplaces and, and in our schools and, and even in our churches, that people would look at us and say, now there's a man or a woman who knows God. I wish I was happy as they are. God, we pray that you would work that in us for the sake of your name, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the salvation of the lost, and for our own joy, we pray by the authority of Jesus' name.